Hey, good morning. Ah, oh, you guys look great on Palm Sunday. Turn to someone around you and say good morning to them if you don't mind. Maybe if you don't know them, introduce yourself for a moment. Ha, violate your own anonymity for a moment and let them know your name. Hey, it's great to see you today. So grab your Bibles, your devices. We're going to turn to the book of Matthew this morning, the book of Matthew, this time chapter 27. Last week we talked about betrayal in 26, but today Matthew chapter 27. We continue in our series called My Story. And, and so we find ourselves in the story of the passion today. But before we go any further, I want us to pray together for a moment. So if you don't mind, pray with me this morning. Father, as we embark on this story today, it's a story that we struggle with, Father, to find ourselves in the middle of. So today, open our hearts and minds to the story of the cross. Father, let us understand that innocent blood was shed for guilty today, and that is the true gospel story, and we are in the middle of that. So Lord, those here today that don't know you as the Savior of their lives, that before they leave, that they would submit to you this morning and receive forgiveness. God, those that are suffering from pain and feel alone and feel forgotten this morning, that they're reminded the cross stands as a powerful symbol of your love and your care for us. So, Father, remind them of that today. For those truly that are reeling in the moments of pain, I pray that you would be with them today in this service. Father, for the family that lost a 19-year-old family member uh, this weekend in a tragic car accident, for the family members that are sitting right here of that very family today, I ask that you would just be with them and that you would wrap your loving arms around them this morning. Because, God, we know that there is nothing too great that you cannot heal within our lives. So we thank you for that in the message of the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last week and this week, we talk about, we're talking about this topic of my story. Now, today at the very end of our teaching, we have a great story video for you from somebody that attends Hope, and you really want to see this. It's going to be very powerful in your life. But where do you see yourself in the stories that we read in the Passion? And what I realize is that this story that we're going to talk about this morning, that of the cross and the crucifixion, it's one of those stories that we struggle to place ourselves in the middle of because we find ourselves many times wanting to separate ourselves from the story of the cross. And so, you know, it's more than just having a cross or a crucifix that is a piece of jewelry that you wear, which I think is a great idea, or having it tattooed on your body, which I think is also a good idea. So, you know, here is the thing that um, I, you know, all the parents that just, that just heard me say that, now you're reeling, aren't you? Yeah, like, yeah, I'm going to kill him. This is the last time I'm coming here. I've been talking to my kid about that. And so, but to put it on there, I think it's wonderful. It is. But here's the thing. It has to be more than that for you and I. We have to see ourselves in the midst of this narrative, this powerful narrative of the cross and the crucifixion of Christ. So let us begin to read right away and get into our story. Then we're going to celebrate in baptism next steps also later on in this service. So it says Matthew in 27 and verse 1, it says this, And when morning came, all the chief priests and all the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I underline those two words, innocent blood. It's really important that we have an understanding of what those words mean. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And they said, what is this that to us? See to it yourself, they said. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. 
and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. And every time I read that, something just rises up inside of me, you know, like some righteous indignation. No, it's just, I get, it makes me mad that they, they would even think that way, the hypocrisy of that. Verse 7, so they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So where do you see yourself in the narrative? Where do you find yourself this morning? And I put something else uh, as, as sort of an addendum to that question. Denial will not exclude you from the script. So there it is, right? I've removed the excuse from you today. Denial does not remove you and I from the script. Whether you're sitting here or you're joining us from church at home this morning, that whether you deny it or not, you, this is your story. We find ourselves there. Because when we read this narrative, I think we want to separate ourselves. I, I understand that thought. That we want to separate ourselves from these words and from this story to keep it to some ecclesiastical, theological discussion and, and not see ourselves there in the middle of all of this. And so we push it to some far corner of our relationship with God and we want to kind of move on. And when I read these texts, what I realize is that we're not by ourselves in that view of the, the cross and the crucifixion and this story. Because that's exactly what the priests and the elders do. That's exactly what Judas does. That's exactly what Pilate does. That's exactly what the crowd that cries out for Barabbas does. That's exactly what they do. It's innocent blood. And who wants to be a part of spilling innocent blood? It's, it's a thought. The priests and the elders, they send Jesus to Pilate. Judas returns the money. He doesn't want any part of that. The, the priests and the elders don't even put it back into the treasury because they don't want really it connected to that at all. Pilate washes his hands of the matters. The crowd that cries out for Barabbas says the blood of Jesus is on the lives of their children. And so no one wants to take responsibility of that. Everyone wants to distance themselves from that of Jesus and spilling innocent blood. And, and I can understand that in some ways. I really can. And, and, and I, what I realize is this, that you can't push this to the far corners of your mind. This is, this is an event. This is a story that you cannot separate yourself from. You can't do that with this event. No matter how hard you try, no matter how diligent you are, you can't separate yourself from this. Try if you will, but you just can't prevent God from loving you. And that's what he's teaching us. And I think that in those moments of our lives when we fail, in those moments of our lives when we struggle with things, in those moments of our life when we're feeling great pain within us, at times we try to push God away. We, we somewhat almost try to prevent God from loving us. And what this says to us in this text is there is no way for you to do that because this is our story. It's the sacrifice of innocent blood for all of us who are far from being innocent in this room. It is. That's the gospel story. And I'm part of the story in that I am guilty. And I have to take responsibility for that. I do. I realize that before I get any further, this is a very different message 
maybe for me and, and, and for you to hear for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm the guy that I always like to throw, you know, humor in the middle of this. And what I've really struggled with in preparing this for the last few weeks is to find a whole lot of humor in the middle of preaching on the crucifixion. It's, it's a struggle. It really is. And, and, and so I, I tried to do that and I realized this is very heavy this morning, but you have to own this. We have some responsibility here, you and I, all of us in this room. So since you have said good morning to the person next to you, you know them really well right now. So I have a question for you to ask that person. Mark, I knew you were coming to this, right? And so here is the question. Here is the question. How much of your life is spent avoiding responsibility? So turn to the person next to you and ask them that question. Ask them that question. You say, Mark, my new friends are gone. (laughs) Right? Yes. Hey, let's take three minutes and discuss it. Why don't we do that, right? No, I don't want to do that. Right? Yeah, you just met somebody. You guys are going to go to lunch. They just canceled on you. They sent you a text sitting right next to you. I don't want any part of that if you're going to have that discussion with me. And it's true. We don't want to discuss this. We want to, we want to relegate it to this time of year. We want to relegate it to artwork. And we want to relegate it to really nice, I think, Uh, emotional moments for our lives, but we really don't want to put ourselves in the middle of that of Jesus, the incarnate Christ, completely holy, absolutely pure, never has sinned and never will sin in his entire existence. And he has always existed from there's no beginning and there's no end. So he is that really the epitome of what it means to be innocent. And he steps into the mess of our humanity, you and I, into the very mess of our lives, that we need a Savior because we cannot fix ourselves, and He steps in to fix us, and we have to own that. It's the beginning of grace for us. If you don't own that, then you cannot sit there today and tell me that you understand grace. Because you can't understand grace outside of the understanding that an innocent person, an innocent man, died for all of us that is guilty. That is exactly the definition of that for our lives. It's mercy and it's grace. Jesus didn't die to call us to some empty lifeless religion. I, I look at the religious leaders here. You know, here is the thing. They pay blood money to have Jesus arrested. Then Judas commits suicide, which they're absolutely responsible for. They're so pious that they don't want to take the money back from Judas and understanding Jewish law. If you, as an accuser, falsely accuse someone, then what we understand is this, that the penalty or the fate of that person that you have falsely accused becomes your fate. And when I thought about that, I realized that Judas didn't falsely accuse anyone. It was the religious leaders. So what I understand is this, that Judas not only carries the weight and the guilt of his own sin, but he carries the weight and guilt over the religious leaders' sin. And here's what I realized. Jesus came for people that carry heavy loads of guilt. Why? Because Jesus is Judas's savior also. And I think we forget about that. That he is also Judas's savior. He came for all of you in this room who have done things or you find yourself in the middle of doing stuff that you are simply weighted down with great guilt within your life this morning. 
He came for you. He died for you. He is your Savior. Look at verse 9. It says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And if you've ever wondered who's in control of all this, look, that as they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me, that none of this is random. Never think that there's part of this is providential and part of this is simply life. And that's kind of the way life goes, right? No, none of this is random at all. This is all the workings of a loving and merciful and kind and forgiving God. It's our story of redemption that innocent blood is shed for the guilty. It's our story. So what I realize is this, that God's plan always had you in mind. God's plan always had you in mind. Verse 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. I underlined that response. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. Not even to a single charge. He says, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I want to, if you press the button and pause this story for a moment. And you take what you read in the gospel of Matthew. And you, you sort of connect that with what you read in the gospel of John. And I, I really encourage you to do that later on today. And you put those together. What you realize is this. That was Jesus the one on trial or was Pilate the one on trial? Because you find some very, very heartfelt, heart-pointed questions that Jesus asked Pilate. And what I understand is this. It's really Pilate that's on trial here. Because it's always been about what? It's always been about Pilate's heart. And it was always about Judas's heart. It was always about that of the chief priest's heart. It was always about that of the crowd that cried for Barabbas' heart. It was always about them. Because when Jesus answers this question, you have said so to Pilate. Why does he confirm the accusation? Why does he confirm that with Pilate? Because when Pilate asks him this, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is asking him that in a context of, are you a king like King David of the Old Testament? And Jesus could have simply taken a technicality. And he could have said, no, I'm not like that of King David because he's not because he's the king of all creation, the king of all people. So what I realize is he could have taken a technicality at that moment. If I were Jesus here as I am today, can I tell you most likely, and it was to save all of you in this room, I, I love you, but I'd have probably taken a technicality, wouldn't you? Yes, be honest. Come on, don't look at me with that pious look. You know you would. If you understood the cross, you would. But he says this to Jesus, or he says this to Pilate, but he keeps silent to the priest and the elders. Why? Because Pilate is the only one in the providence that has the right to approve capital punishment. And I thought, wow, that this is really about me. This is truly about me. No wonder he kept silent with the chief priests and the elders because they didn't have the right to crucify him. They didn't, it wasn't lawful for them to do that. Only Pilate could do that. He speaks those words to the one that has the right to say, you're going to be crucified, the sentence him to death. Why? Because this was always about you and I. It was always about us. 
It was always about his heart toward you and I and his love for you and I that Jesus could have simply stood there and he could have defended himself against all the injustices that were being spoken about him. And if you understand anything about Roman law, if you're accused of something and you keep silent, then Roman's law says that you are assumed guilty. Jesus kept silent in all of those other accusations. Why? Because it's about you and I. He loved us more than that of his right to defend himself in the midst of all these injustices. But in this story, he's the only one that's innocent. I know you're picking your characters, right? If you're going to pick your characters, then, then can I tell you one that you cannot be? You can't play Jesus, all right? I'm just going to tell you that up front. And I know you well, or some of you, I see you breathing and you're living. And so I know you're sinful creatures and I know what you're capable of doing. Happy Palm Sunday. Isn't that wonderful, right? Yes. It's true, though. You, you are born with this propensity to sin. You mess up all the time. We as the human race love a lie more than we love the truth. That's who we are as humans. And so what I realize is there's only one character in this entire dialogue in this story that is innocent and that is Jesus. And that the story simply goes that he, the only one that's innocent, carries the guilt of everyone. And so what that makes us, that makes everyone in this room people of the cross. Every one of us, whether you're lost or found, whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you're an agnostic or whether you're a believer today, whether you are redeemed or unredeemed, I need to go down the list, whether you're Muslim or Christian, it doesn't matter that it is impossible for you and I, whoever we are, it is absolutely impossible for you and I to ever live out from under the shadow of the cross. It's impossible. So the person that you looked at a few moments ago and asked them that tough question, how much of your life is spent not taking responsibility? They have to take responsibility. And guess what? You do too. And on this stage, I have to also. That I have to take responsibility for the cross and what is happening here on the cross. The beauty of what is taking place in the middle of this gruesome scene. That I have to realize that this is my story. And there is nothing I can do in this life to prevent Jesus from loving me. Nothing. Nowhere can I go. No deed so dastardly that I can prevent him from loving me. So we are truly people of the cross. We are. So here comes the heavy part. You say, Mark, that's not the heavy part? No, here's the heavy part, okay? This is it. It's verse 32. And they went out and they found a man of, of, of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to, to carry his cross. At this point, Jesus is so weak from this massive loss of blood within his life that his back has been torn to shreds by the scourgings that if you were to see his back, that you could see his muscular system. You could see his vascular system. It was all open. That, that it was extremely painful. And on top of that, they dropped this 200-pound crossbar. And that crossbar is the very same bar that has been used for multiple crucifixions prior to Christ. And so that bar 
the stench of blood and of rotten flesh is on that from multiple, multiple crucifixions prior to Christ. And they strap that to the back of our, our Lord. And they simply, he's so weak from the loss of blood that they find this random guy, the Romans do, to help Jesus. But when I realize and I look at this story, there's absolutely nothing random about this story. There's no aspects of randomness here. There's not... In fact, Matthew takes the time to record this man's name as Simon of Cyrene. And when we realize this, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, even says that he is the father of a man by the name of Rufus. And I put all this together to realize and understanding what God is doing for you and I is this, that when we finished our series in the book of Romans a few weeks ago, that we read chapter 16 together, remember? And I read all those crazy names that are in there that Paul was connected to, right? I practiced weeks on those names, and one of those names was the name of Rufus. And what we realize theologically and historically is this, that this man, this this man here that is Simon of Cyrene, he is the father of Rufus. And I thought it was so powerful that God helps you and I to connect all the dots of this together. It's so much more meaningful with this historical context for us that might even say, hey, this is a wonderful story about passion and somebody that loves others. But truly, truly that there is, you know, it's just another criminal dying, a good man or being put to death. But it's more than that. And you're part of the story today. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And I begin to read about that. And what I understand is this. It's a narcotic. It's a painkiller. And they they were going to give Jesus a little bit to knock the edge off of his pain. But what we realize is that in the garden prior to his arrest, That the weight that Jesus felt, almost even unto death, his own words, was the weight of the crucifixion. That to God revealed, his Father revealed to him an understanding. He felt the pain already. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. So nothing that happened on the cross or anything that happened on the cross was not a surprise to Christ. And he felt that. So why, knowing all of that that was going about to happen to him, why didn't he take a, something to knock the pain off? Why? Because he's demonstrating for you and I. He's demonstrating that full depth of his love for you and I, that he will experience all the horrors of the crucifixion with no painkillers, because that sets value on us. Understand that. Because when you give up something for someone else, it says that those people are more important to you than your very life itself. And it is what Christ was setting a value on us. He sets the tone for the crucifixion by openly establishing how much He values you. By saying, no, I will suffer all of the horror of the crucifixion. Because that's the depth of my love for my children. For us, as being part of the story. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Here's the heavy part. You say, Mark, heavier than that? Yeah, it gets really heavy. Because when I look at the crucifixion, what I realize is to be crucified was simply a cycle of pain for those victims on the cross. The crucifixion was always designed 
to keep people alive as long as possible, to torture them as long as they could. It was designed to bring the victim to a point of death and then cheat them out of the mercy of death by simply moving that pain to another extremity of their body. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected the art of crucifixion. And for Christ that day, as I began to think about what he experienced, I made a list that he experienced dizziness and cramps. He, dis- he experienced massive dehydration, sleeplessness for the hours that he was there on the cross, hunger, traumatic fever, humiliation and shame. Because they stripped our Lord to nothing. He was completely nude when they crucified him. The shame of any Jewish man was to be nude in front of especially other women or their their friends or even family members. And they defiled him and they shamed him by stripping him completely naked before everybody that day. And they hung him naked. There's piercing wounds, there's torn ligaments and tendons, there's disjointed limbs, there's massive losses of blood. But I think the very worst of all of this, as I begin to look at this, was that of suffocation. I think it's something that we would all dread. It it makes us break out in a sweat to think about suffocation. You know, when I was a kid and and we would play play football and somebody always had this, this... Bright idea to play tackle football with no pads, right? Because you're a kid, you're invincible. And and then, so we said, yeah, let's do that. We'll heal, no big deal, right? And so when you get tackled, especially on the line, then everybody wants to pile on. And if you're the person with the ball, where do you find yourself? You find yourself at the very bottom of the pile. We call it a dog pile, right? That's what they call it. And, And you find yourself at the bottom. And then everybody kind of lingers at the top and you find yourself down there and all of a sudden you can't breathe real well and you start to kind of suffocate and you're not strong enough to lift them off of you. What do you do? You begin to panic. For some of you in this room, just talking about that raises your anxiety level because you can feel it. Can you imagine for hours... Because in order for Christ to breathe, he had to pull himself up by his arms. And he does this by the nails that are driven either in his hands or his wrist. And so when he would pull himself up by his hands, that you could hear the tendons begin to tear. You could hear the flesh begin to rip as he would do that. Agony and pain was unbelievable. But that was the only way that he could get a breath. And he could only hold himself up for a few moments. And then he would drop back down. And when he dropped back down, he began the suffocation process again. And, and also the pain of putting all of his weight on his feet. They were nailed together to the cross that day. And I think about this, that there's nothing There's nothing beautiful just by the the event of the cross and that, that way of torture. It is gruesome. It's marked by shame and anguish. It's marked by screaming moments of pain in people's life. It's one of the slowest and most horrific ways to die. And Isaiah 53 says, But he was pierced for our transgression." He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds that we are healed. 
And how can we push this story to a corner? How, how can we say, how, how can we ever be like Pilate or be like the chief priests and the elders? How can we ever be like those in the crowd jeering for Barabbas? How can we ever say, I don't, I don't want any part of this because I want to tell you it's impossible for you as a created being in this world to not have a part of this. We all live in the shadow of the cross. Every one of us. In the shadow of the most magnificent, beyond the ability to describe, act of love ever perpetrated toward you and I. Verse 36 says, And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They're taunting him and they're saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others and he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And then they get amazingly personal and they said, if he deserves or if he desires him, as if to say that your own father has abandoned you. He would, your own father wouldn't even want you, is what they said, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And what I realize is that not everyone sees the cross the same way. Not everyone does. But it doesn't change the unchangeable fact that you and I live in the shadow of the cross of Christ. So some rage against God. And we find ourselves there in our life. And, and I'll, I'll tie this together. We'll watch a video and I'll come back and say something to you in a moment. But we sometimes we rage against God and and I went over to the book of Luke and it talks about these, these criminals that were crucified on both sides of Christ in Luke 23 and 39. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And if you look at the gospel of Matthew, it says that both of them treated Jesus like that at that point. And then we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that another, one of the others, one of them comes back to Christ at some point. And, and he says, you know, why, paraphrasing, why do you rebuke him? Listen, we're about to die these criminals' death, and he's absolutely innocent, why, why do you, which is truly an act of repentance upon his part, part. But when I look at this text, what I realize is that these two guys represent people that are hurting, and they're, they've been harmed in life, and, and they're suffering, and, and they're looking to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you're who you say you are, then fix all of this. And how many times have you ever said that to God? How many times have you ever said to God, God, if you are God, then why did you let this happen to me? God, if you're God, then, then why is my marriage in shambles, God? And, and God, if you're in control of all things and you're such a good God, then why am I suffering or, 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 or why am I kids so rebellious or God, why have I made some really bad decisions within my life and I'm, I'm at where I am today? So, so, Lord, if you're so good, then why has all this happened to me? And what I realized when I, when I read this and understand these two characters are hanging on both sides of Christ, that there's really here only one who deserves to feel no pain in life 
because of his innocence, that is Christ. And what I realize in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my struggling in life, in the middle of those moments where I just struggle to find God, God's always there. He's always there right beside me. He's always close to me. Even in those moments when I yell out to him, where are you, God? He's there through the cross to remind me that he cares. He cares greater for me than anyone in this life could. Even in the middle of my struggles. Even in the middle of my pain. So for a moment, turn your attention to the screen for Janet's story this morning. No marriage to me is so super perfect that you don't have a problem. And the problem with my marriage was that my husband was gone a lot and uh, I was busy with three children and then when he came home I was still busy with three children and I think that that had contributed a lot to uh, my situation uh, because I had to function on my own. He would be gone for you know, anywhere from two to three days at a time, and then he'd be home for two to three days. So it was a in and out type of a relationship. And you just kind of, we just kind of grew apart. And I would try to change things, but it never worked. Until finally one day he came home from work and he said to me, I don't love you, I never did love you, I should never have married you. And I fell apart. That struggle was horrendous. It was, it knocked me off my feet, so to speak. And I thought, why is this happening to me? I could remember getting in the back of our big car, we had a big Suburban, and driving it to the nearest park, crawling way back in the back of the trunk, and crying and crying and crying and crying and laying down and, and pleading with God. I was suicidal at times. I had a child who was suicidal at times. My youngest son um, blamed himself. Why, I still don't know to this day. I've never cried so much in my life as I did in that time of my life. I don't know where I heard it or whatever, but someone or something told me that if you could live through this grief for three minutes or this thought of suicide for three minutes, generally you'll find another answer so I that was kind of what I lived with okay I can get through this for three minutes three minutes three minutes hurry up three minutes <laughs> type of thing and um, then God kept showing me that I was still worthwhile and that he still loved me even though I couldn't understand how but then I thought, God is not leaving me. He knows. God loves me no matter what. So I struggled with the fact that I really didn't want to live as I've expressed because I never lived by myself. I was afraid. Uh, I was married when I was very young. Um, had kids about three or four years later. 
and then now I have to live by myself. I don't know how to do that. Daily living is sometimes very difficult. Uh, we all have struggles. We all have make mistakes. Uh, we all want to go on our own. Then it hit me. I'm not living by myself. I'm living with God. God is with me all the time. Even when I make mistakes, He's still with me. Even when I get my, let my pride <laughs> get in the way, He is with me. God keeps working on us because He loves us. And that is everything. God's love is powerful. Much better than human love. <laughs> I think about Peter in the Bible a lot. How, God, I won't deny you. No, not me, God. It's almost as if he's saying, we're buddy-buddy, God, not me, you know. And I think, but he did. God told him. God knew it. And that has, that's a, a part of the story that has really helped me a lot in God's Word is, God already knows my failures far before I do. I just need to admit them and ask him for help. And sometimes that help comes through others, and sometimes that help comes through reading the Word. Many other facets, it helps. It takes my pride down a notch or two. <laughs> yeah. God brought me through it. And I'm a stronger person today because of the heartaches that I've had in my life. And yet God is there. He has never left me. And it's just to me that is one of the most awesome things to live for, is to let God lead you. We all have a story. We all find ourselves in the story. At some point in the crucifixion, that Jesus cries out in a moment and he says these powerful words Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. And those words simply mean, My father. Why have you forsaken me? And as I read that over and over, over the last few weeks, what I realize is that there are those around him who said at that moment, he's calling on Elijah. And that's not what he's saying at all. And so I realized that most of the people even around the cross that day did not understand what Jesus was doing and what was happening. But in the verses 54 and 55 in Matthew chapter 27, it says that that day a centurion who after they experienced the earthquake, the centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. But if you read that verse and sit in it for a moment, what it says is that with the centurion were some women there that day. 
And we find later to be the women that had been following Christ. And the scripture said they had been ministering to him. And it ties those two groups together, the centurion and those women. And it's it's an amazing thought. And I end with this with you this morning. That of all the people surrounding the cross that day. That there was only two groups of individuals that really understood what was going on. And that was the centurion and the women. And in that culture, whether it's Jewish or Roman culture, both, both were marginalized groups. Both were, both were somewhat outcast groups at that moment. But yet they got it. And I realized this. That grace is only understood and experienced, I believe, in the shadow of humility. That there was a powerful moment that took place even there at the foot of the cross where only those that got it were those that were marginalized by that culture. Because at that moment... That centurion, those women are looking up at Christ on the cross. I have a six-month-year-old granddaughter named Selah Gray. Who, I love her so much. She has the biggest, deepest eyes. I find excuses to go see her, you know, because she's close. And when, I, when Papa takes her outside right now because of the birds, the birds, the noise, the chirping of the birds, her eyes just lighten up and she looks up every time. She looks up. And I, I think, you know, you're going to hurt your neck, child. So I try to lean her back because she's constantly looking for birds all the time. Because she's looking up and she's looking outside of herself for something so beautiful. What I realize about grace is that grace only flows down from the cross. It doesn't flow in any other way, but it only flows down from the cross in a moment where we realize that we need it more than the breath that we breathe. Because it is the only thing that satisfies our hearts the longings of our soul and brings fulfillment to our lives. In the moment when we've messed up, in the moment when we've blown it big time, it's the only thing that fixes us is His grace. And it's outside of us, it's beyond us. It flows from the cross for you and I today. So for a moment, Would you bow your heads and just cut out all the distractions? Those that are joining us from church at home today, we are so glad that you're here. But could you just sort of for a moment close out all the distractions at home and just pray with us? Father, by your providence, we are here today. We may have said we're going to church somewhere on Palm Sunday. But sometimes, God, we don't realize how little control we actually have.
that you've brought us here by your love and your design. And so God, we're here for purpose. Because God, in this room, you know your children and there's some today that have never come to a a relationship with you. God, they've never come to this salvation understanding of who you are in their life. But today they find themselves in the shadow of the cross. Grace is flowing down from the cross. They realize a need for you in their lives. Lord, begin to work in their hearts because you choose us. God, for those in the room that are angry, that have lost things and lost people in their lives, for those that life has not turned out the way that they thought it would turn out, and God, at times you know they've railed against you as we all have. But God, you don't judge us. You love us. And so in that moment, may they feel and sense your grace and love from the cross like never before. God, for those in the room that feel so distant from you today. Father, to them you feel like you are light years away. God, may they know that you are close. That you are close, God. Never to leave. Never to forsake as you were forsaken. That you accept us exactly where we are in life. Not a better version of us. But where we are at this moment. So Lord, deal with us where we are today. Father, forgive me of my sins. I recognize my need for a Savior in my life this morning. God, I've run from you for years. But Jesus, here I am. Save me today. Father, to that individual, let your grace flow from your cross today in their lives. Bring healing, fulfillment, May we see the beauty of your love for us. And for those things we ask in your name.